Yo, yo. Hello and yo, welcome yo. to Double Book. I'm James yo, yo. Brown. And I'm Sabi Reyes Gulcarno. As as I'm, I'm a media obsessive. And I'm a music journalist. Because my biological didn't bother. What do you think is next for Rex Ryan? ESPN. Which is interesting because he gets he gets criticized so much on there. I wonder about those relationships. How, I mean, so, did, so did George Carl. George Carl is getting criticized anew yeah. on there, getting torn oh, up. Oh, he is. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. For a lot of reasons that are... Um, I mean, rightfully so. I think I, I like that he did it because it's fun, but like, it's it's also fucked up that he did it. <laughs> yeah, how out of line do you think he was? I'm pretty out of line. I think um, like you don't talk about somebody's mama or somebody's daddy. And like, and just expect everybody to just be cool with it. Um, you don't talk about family situations like that. And the fact that he seems to think that he is going to get another job is bizarre. As he said in several interviews since that he, he really thinks he's going to get hired again. He's not going to get hired again. Not after this. Not a chance. He, there's not a chance that he's going to get hired again. Um, I can't imagine the the what owner. Okay, so after you criticize, okay, how many what, the percentage of players in the NBA that are black are what? Is it eighty something? Eighty, maybe seventy five. And the idea. <laughs> That you could go after black athletes like that, and then I think you know many of them come from single parent homes. Well, that's an interesting thing because I'm not sure that's not that that's entirely too, true. But there, I think many of them are uniquely affected or know people who are sure um, or um, or come if they don't come from single parent homes, they come from sort of backgrounds that are. Very much um, challenged in some way, um, because there, there was a very interesting article from a year years back about how it's hard to be a finely tuned athlete and come from a, a poor background. Where was the article? You I, remember? I don't remember exactly, um, but um, just just like um, if you think of. Many of the the best athletes in the NBA or or the biggest stars, many of them, you know, LeBron James is the exception. There's a lot of two parent homes in there, um, but they're not, they're not necessarily rich. But it's more it's not the bottom of the economic well. Right. So what you're saying is that people who have managed to stay on that an athletic track typically they're getting some. They're either getting some help, some guidance from whether it's externally mm-hmm. or it's like in or in their household. I mean, even look at Steph Curry. 
mm-hmm. is a perfect example. Um, uh, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, they're obviously the richer of the of those. They're they're the richer of the um, the people, the kids who are elite athletes, right? Because Thompson is the son of a former NBA player, former number one overall pick, and uh, Del Cl- uh, Curry was is also a, a former NBA player who's uh, Steph's father. Uh, so, I, but according to this article, and I don't remember where it's from, um, it contended that you can't really have one without the other. Like, you, you need good nutrition in order to become sure. a D1 athlete. And also the parental support system where you'd have the structure, you'd have uh, just just to the amount of guidance that two parents can give you, or or one parent that's always working and another parent that can can supply that, just makes more sense. Yeah, and I think that like it's a rare story that you actually hear of an NBA player going from gang leader or gang member to mm-hmm. the NBA. Um, many of them went to prep schools in high school. Mm-hmm. Many of them were involved with AAU, which has you basically playing basketball for 365. Well, and just as a side note with the gang thing, I've heard several people who have emerged from that life mm-hmm. who say that if you are talented, if 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 you're in a neighborhood where gangs are prevalent and they recognize that you have athletic ability, they'll steer you away from gang life. Well, so, that doesn't surprise me. Um, that there's some sort of code, and that's typically the way it is. That people take it upon themselves to say, "No, nah, this isn't for you. Stick to your." So, so even there, you already have guidance towards. Uh, sticking with athletics, but but you're right. It takes so much energy and effort and constant maintenance. And you know, and we're dealing with kids, so you know, rare is the kid who is going to have the drive on their own without someone pushing and pulling on them. You know, right? And I think that while it might not be as bad as like hockey dads, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that of that phenomenon. No, but do tell. But essentially, like um. Hockey parents are apparently notorious. The ones that of the successful, like uh, high school and like mites level, like um, parents. There's a lot of Richard Williams um, or or uh, or the the parent, uh, the father of Serena and Venus Williams, who are or or Earl Woods, uh, Tiger Woods' dad, who are just incredibly intense. When it comes to hockey parents, apparently they're w- well known for being. That even if your kid is elite, the the next couple levels down of parents are really like known to be like punchy and 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 very like aggressive in terms of their approach to getting their kids to reach a certain level mm-hmm. and their coach and their approach to just hockey overall. Well, and and the two people you mentioned, the two the, or the three athletes you mentioned, the Williams sisters and Tiger Woods, the impression I got was that their dads were kind of their de facto coaches and yeah. trainers. 
And managers, right? Yeah. And I think they're both military guys. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I know Earl Woods definitely was. I think Richard Williams was. I don't know offhand. So let's let's deconstruct what George Carl was saying and what the what the the subtext was. And I don't know whether he intended this or not. I mean, I don't know that it's a bad thing for a coach to offer an opinion that a couple of guys were not ready and didn't have the character to embrace or the development to embrace responsibility when they were on his team. But by saying they didn't have fathers in their lives, they didn't have men in their lives, there are a number of obvious things that are problematic about that. And the subtext is that, you know, there's a racial tinge uh, because as as you were suggesting earlier, absence the the absence of fathers is more prevalent in 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 poor black communities, or or is prevalent in poor in 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 poor black communities. But why those two particular players? Why would he say that about them in particular? That's what I wonder. Before we get there, I want to I want to back up a bit. Sure. I would like to equate this to the Phil Jackson, LeBron James conundrum. Please. And that I don't think that the larger offense, based on those statements, saying that they, they didn't have fathers who didn't teach them how to become men and handle the fame and money. Um, and the offense around it is almost... It's not even necessarily. It's like um, when you are a high-profile black athlete or black person, you find yourself carrying the flag for more than just you. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact, it, even though he was talking about them directly, it was seen as a punch at. Every black person, whether it was true about them or not. And I think it's clear he was tone deaf to that, too. Yeah, I don't think he... He definitely didn't think it through in terms of that. I think, And I think he just did not... I don't think he thought it would be as big a deal as it did, as it was. Right, and I, and I mean, I've heard commentators suggest that well, he was, and you know, he was offered this book deal, and so he's got to put juicy details to keep readers engaged and and get people interested. I mean, I don't know what's see. I'm I'm used to the 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 rock biography book where there tends to be a lot of, (laughs) I mean, those books are filled typically with salacious backbiting, all sorts of juicy stuff. People betraying each other. I mean, the Keith Richards book is a a perfect example. I mean, he savaged Mick Jagger and then after he made all his money apologized, which I thought was really weak. Um, but you know he sold the book with all these quotes about Mick Jagger that were like whoa, and then and then is oh I'm sorry I should have apologized to him after after you know everybody bought the book. I thought that was lame. But anyway, um, in that tradition, <laughs> that's a huge part of it. In sports, I've heard people. I heard Byron Scott say this the other day, former NBA coach mm-hmm. who coached Kenyon Martin in New Jersey, okay, and responded 
I think it was on the jump, uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Kenyon was there, and Byron and and Kenyon responded to. They addressed the, the the issue of what George Carl said in the book, and Byron said, you know, there's a code between, and I've heard others say this as well. There's a code between coaches and players. You don't. Their players are confiding things in you, and and you're seeing things as their coach, under the premise that you're not going to go public with it. You may suggest certain things, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't tell all that's a violation of of, of confidence of a trust yeah but i don't know i mean i don't so much have an issue with him saying these two guys didn't strike me as men and they didn't handle their responsibilities the way other players did or the way one would expect or the way one would have hoped the one thing that i didn't like about it was that it seemed like he had an axe to grind and it made his credibility instantly like it made him seem not very self-aware of whatever his own dynamic was with his players, and it also made like why did he single them out? You know what I mean? Like I don't think right. that's that's an issue. That's just that they were the worst two examples of that. I, I I can't. I have a hard time believing that. It made it seem like he was like he set out to kind of uh, take sh- take shots at them. And Kenyon Martin, uh, I, I in that same segment with Byron Scott, he said that. Um, he flew to L.A. or wherever it was when Carl was struggling with cancer. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me like Martin is like really stung by this, like personally. And now is saying, oh, you're a terrible person, and, and this is why nobody... But I, I don't know that he always thought he was a terrible person. He kind of is reacting kind of almost like a, a, a kid to a parent, <laughs> in a way. You know what I'm saying? Like, if he flew, if he, if he made that trip when Carl was had his cancer issues... He couldn't have hated the guy then. You see what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, I think Carl stepped into a landmine, was trying to be provocative, and then uh, another host on, I think it's The Jump on ESPN, the, the and I, I don't remember her name, but... Rachel Nichols? I think so. She's got like a real snappy delivery. Yeah. Um, yes. Rachel Nichols. And she was like, this guy keeps... They address the issue of him wanting to coach again. She's like, that ain't going to happen. Not only that, he keeps going out of his way to make radio appearances yes. and taking shots at people he didn't even take shots at in the book and yep. stirring up controversy. So yeah. what's your take on that? How intentional do you think that is or versus him just being oblivious? There was a reason why George Carl was a really fantastic analyst on ESPN. It was this. That what? That he wouldn't, that he wouldn't pull no punches? Yeah. Like he he was not afraid to criticize. He was never uh, afraid to pull a punch or or sort of uh, go after anyone. And I think that it's biting him at the moment because he's all, clearly on a book tour, and clearly every sports talk radio station in the world and radio host wants to talk to him. Especially now that he's being so free yeah. with generating a story every time he shows up. Yeah, and he was he's also a guy, at least I, I don't know him personally, obviously, but just from watching him, is that he is unapologetically honest. He just says what he feels at the moment, and uh, he just lets it rip. So I don't know that he's intending to like stir stuff up, I think if you he's one of those guys that no matter if you ask him how he's feeling at the moment he will tell you it without a filter. So 
how much of an issue do you have him then with him thinking and also saying he thought those guys lacked, for lack of a better word, manhood or maturity because they're because they they didn't have father figures in their lives. How do I feel about it? Yeah, I mean, what what's your? All right, I didn't have a father figure growing up. Um, I think there is. There are th- there. Neither are way- did I, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah. So you, you, I think you could. I don't know if you will have the same experience because I don't think we've talked about this ever. But there, there are ways that it affects you, and that you. You don't have the guy to teach you to shave and like and all the cliche things, um, and I think I didn't. I on some level it felt like a slap, you know, even to me personally. Um, but I, I'm not. It, it didn't. I'm not angry. I'm not pitchforks in. In um, in uh, flames, you know, I'm not going to burn down George Carl because of a, a uh, these statements. I think that I, I don't think he is being overly malicious. I think he's sort of um being, as I said earlier, more honest. Than he probably should be, and know, and a little tone deaf to how this that kind of comment, as you were getting w- at, would reverberate today, right? And, and among you know seventy five percent of the players in the league, right? And so you're saying no team would go near him now? No, not now. I, I don't think so. I think it was doubtful before this. Hmm. I think uh, it's not that he's not a great coach. It's just that at this point, um, it actually his style would make total sense in modern NBA. Um, in many ways, he was ahead of his time. Hmm. He was very up and down, um, run and gun, um, you know, uh, type of style that I think would work if given the right pieces. Kenyon Martin, I don't know how much Kenyon Martin said this before, but he has since he c- come out and coach, said, right? yes, that he's not, that it, no, that he's great at coaching offense, but that he doesn't have a sense of the whole game. And that his his understanding of defense is lacking. That's true of so like you, you could you could make that argument about so many coaches in so many sports that they are uh, that they're excellent at one facet, and like eventually like when they're when they're faced with having to um to to um to be a head coach and deal with all facets of the game that they that there's a failure. You know, I'm a Bills fan. We just, hired a, we just hired Rex Ryan, and we just fired Rex Ryan. Rex cared so much about defense, had no grasp of the offense. You look at it this year, I mean, the offense was wildly successful, and he was over, you know, managing the defense. And I think that um, and the defense was a failure. I think that you could make that argument in hockey or or – or any any sport where there is a coach. See, but here's what again uh, uh, coming back to this. What strikes me about Kenyon Martin? You can't win a. Oh, before I, I let you go, you can't win a thousand games like George Carl did and not have any grasp of defense. See, and you knew instinctually. You're like he's coming out and saying he's a terrible coach. Yeah. Um. <laughs> my. So the thing with Martin's reaction. 
I'm a little skeptical that that this is the complete picture of how he felt all along. Like I said it's before, not he's being emotional. Right, I saw, right. I saw him on um, Colin Coward's uh, show, yeah, um, and it was similar, very emotional reaction to all of this. And I and I get it. He just he just talked about your family. Um, yeah, but he must have see. But if he thought. George Carl was a terrible person. He wouldn't be surprised. What yeah. what strikes me is that he seems spurned. Good point. Yeah, and it's it's almost like he thought their relationship was different. Yeah. yeah, and now he's like, no, we never had a relationship. We yeah. uh, he came in, he never said hi to any of the players. Like, yeah. you know, and he, and Martin is saying that a guy who comes in and doesn't even associate with the players, walks through the locker room, doesn't say hi to him, doesn't understand people, and doesn't have people skills at all, and is like trying to act as if he's on a higher plane than his players, and but. Again, and then you watch footage and you see pictures of them, and yeah, things got a little heated. I almost feel like they had a father-son type relationship unconsciously, and Martin is hurt. And I think it was Rachel Nichols who even said, so you were hurt by this, and then she changed... Because, you know, you ask men, you ask male, they're not going to say that. Yeah. They're like, like, no, I'm pissed. I even say that, no, I'm not hurt, I'm pissed. You know? Um, so, the, it, it's interesting. But uh, again, I think I think he was being tone deaf. Similar to Phil Jackson, was not aware of what the the implications of his comment would be, and he has since walked them back a little bit. He since tried to swallow them, and then George Martin or uh, Kenya Martin was like, "Oh, he's just I don't I don't buy it. He's not being sincere. He's just doing that now because he got criticized. Otherwise, he would have tried to he would have yeah, used that's it to every sell the apology book. ever. Pretty much." I mean, I, I don't, I, don't, I never get that kind of response. Who apologizes for the sake of apologizing? Not publicly. Some people. I guess if you if you had like a, a privately, yeah, but a public figure like this, when you literally when you put it in a book, and I haven't written a book, but you're gonna piss people off if you do. Yeah, I mean, if you're honest, you're gonna have to make those same choices. Right of what to say and what not to say. Also, the editing process I, I am aware of of a book is extensive. Uh, when when you when you're working through a publisher and you go through rounds and rounds and rounds and stuff has to be cleared. You have to go through lawyers. Legal, yeah, because it, you can get sued. It, and and uh, I think that's that's Bill Simmons made a really fascinating thought because in this um, George Carl is still ch- uh, cl- uh, cashing checks from the. Sacramento Kings, right? And they can sue. They can they can cut that's, his pay. Because that's why there's virtually nothing in the book about the Kings, <laughs> right? Because it's it's a stipulation of his contract that he he might I have forgot the wording. NDA. He might have signed an NDA that we don't know because don't they don't know. tell you that yeah. right. Because then then that just opens the door to saying, well, there's things this person is we don't want him to tell you, but or he just didn't want him to mess around with the money. Because he's still making, he was making a, I think it was around five mil, sure, a year, sure, and he's got a couple more years on that deal. So, you 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 brought up the the you know you think he's not going to get high. This kills his chances. What what was he thinking from a career standpoint with this book? I think, I I think he was he's kind of. Vulcan, in the in a, in a way, um, in that he is like he may not have known he was doing what he was doing, 
Huh. Like, uh, that that's the way that I, from what I've seen him as an analyst. Well, the Kings lawyers will let him know if they think he yeah. tripped that line. But the thing is, like, he is, uh, um, he's like, oh, I feel what I feel, and I'm just going to say what I feel. And he does not think of the consequences. That's why he's gotten in trouble many times throughout his career for popping off about certain things. Um, like there was one example that I can think of was was um, when um, Doc Rivers got his first head coaching job mm-hmm. prematurely, mm-hmm. I, and I I I think he was totally right that it was premature uh, because he went directly from player to head coach. But of course, that's going to Strike a chord, well, right? That's gonna that's gonna hit hit nerves, isn't it? Yeah. Doc went back at him. He said, "Hey, Larry Bird never coached before. Mm-hmm. Larry Bird got a head coaching job out of nowhere." And don't you think that's a legit response? It, it's a legit. I'm not saying it's not a unless legit. Carl criticized that too. Uh, no, he didn't. Okay. And he was in the league at that point too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. So so it was like okay. So that was another thing on on a racial spectrum where like he he just said. Someone asked him a question, and he immediately just spat out how he felt at the moment, without thinking of the the how it would be on a larger context. Received right, Charles Barkley, another popper offer. Yeah, said he likes him personally and was just disappointed. Yeah, I think that's, but that he likes him personally. It's just about every response from people, especially people in the media, was very similar. Well, Kenya Martin said nobody likes this guy. Well. Martin, he is as he, as we spoke. Earlier. I just think that's interesting. He's he's trying to paint the picture that he's like, well, how come how come people aren't rushing to his defense? Clearly, this shows you what type of person he is. That nobody is in his corner, basically. Or maybe he just said something stupid. But you don't buy that nobody's in his corner. No, I don't buy that anyone's in. The, no one's in their quarter. I, I I think it was just he is. I think at this point, you can't really defend what he said. No, like there's no angle there. No, and I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I think it's a dupe. I don't know if dubious is the right word. I'm skeptical and suspicious of 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 saying that about those two guys. I guess those were the two stars on the Nuggets at the time. E- Carmelo yeah. obviously was, yeah. but but yeah, yeah, they both were on at one point. And so, there's no way that that only applies to them. You're talking dudes who are young in their 20s who all of a sudden have money in their stars like give me a break. Like I think he just has a well a, look a gr- not a, not a gr- not a grudge, maybe some kind of lingering resentment towards them that I, he didn't get as much out of them as he thought he could or something. I, and I I kind of get it with Carmelo why he would have a grudge. Why is that? Is that Carmelo was he is going to go down in history as one of the greatest scorers of all time mm-hmm. and one of the most disappointing talents in the history of the NBA. That's interesting. My friend who is a sports nut who I've mentioned him before, uh, labor history and political science professor at Eastern Carolina University, said he's the most disappointing NBA player now this guy's a a very passionate and um uh um doomed or hopeless Knicks fan. <laughs> so there's that coloring his perspective but but why I, why is it why do people paint him as a disappointment? He and LeBron were looked at as equals. LeBron 
it's not even necessarily skill set because in many ways they have the same skill set. Um, LeBron put forth more effort. Le- uh, Carmelo was a better shooter and still is a better shooter than LeBron. Um, but LeBron put forth effort on all angles of the game, uh, both defensively, offensively, and mentally. Hmm. And you're saying you can see with your eyes Absolutely. that Carmelo, did, Carmelo not, did, did not do that. Carmelo is an awful defender. He's, and you're saying he could have improved. Absolutely. Defense is something you learn. Because Kellerman savages him every day almost. It, says over and over and over. Kellerman's also a Knicks fan, by the way. But yeah. says over and over and over, he cannot lead a team to a championship. He's, 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 not, he's good or he's great, but he's not great enough. And he could have been great enough. Hmm. It's not a lack of skills. It's not a lack of physical gifts. It's not a lack of a father figure. It, no. <laughs> it's it's a guy who had every conceivable tool. And uh, early in his career, he had more. Uh, he had a better uh, supporting cast than LeBron did. Hmm. He and, doesn't anymore. Uh, not at this point. No. But... For the first, uh, I'd say, three or four years of his career, he did. So basically, George Carl is disappointed in these guys. I think and I so. think he I, wishes that the, he, the team would have gone further with them. And he's speaking like a parent. Yeah. And they're responding like his kids. Yes. Which is, which is funny, because I don't think any of them either admit or grasp that necessarily or even aware of that's what's going on because what's funny is the whole controversy is that Carl cast aspersions on the way these guys were raised. But if you flip it, it's like, dude, why weren't you better at being a, a, an authority figure for them? Yeah. It's, right? It's, I mean, if, if you're complaining they weren't mature enough, why were, where were you? It's interesting. Like, should we be like, is that what we are to expect out of any other level, any other employer? Well, they ever? have to be leaders. And employers are you are typically not dealing with kids who right. have not had... Well, they are eventually. Like, if you're straight out of college? Yeah, but kids who have been cloistered to this degree... Okay, sure. And don't have other life experience. Uh, as, 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 uh, uh, I mean, coddled maybe is a better uh, word. I don't know about that. Okay, so the average kid goes to college, gets yeah. a job, yeah. gets a job in what well, maybe I don't know name an industry, um, marketing or something like that. Okay, they haven't been necessarily breezed through school. They haven't been treated with the same cultish uh, uh, fascination. Okay. All right, where they would expect special treatment. Uh, I mean, the, I think a lot co- of employers would disagree. But college athletes, well, they probably disagree with that. This generation is, I would say, like uh, too soft or whatever, or too spoiled. But college athletes have a very different experience than yeah, just about anybody else. I, I would agree with that. I, I think that that it's true that I'm not saying they're equal, but I'm saying that there are there's a level of entitlement um at a level of breezing through school that 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 um that not every kid but you uh, certain kids in 
in these circumstances. And I've worked in marketing departments mm-hmm. where you've had that youngin who comes in and they're entitled and they are like uh, uh, the, 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 everything came easy, then something doesn't. I don't think you would see that in medicine. I suspect. Maybe I, not I in know. medicine. I don't think you'd see that in law. I don't, um, think, you, I don't think you'd see that in, um, in uh, what's the other thing that I just thought of? Science? I mean, even I, I mean, I think my personal experience, um, just going into broadcasting straight out of college, I mean, I, I think I was brattier. Oh, yeah? Um, what did you expect? What were you entitled to? In your I, estimation, it, look, I felt I w- I felt like I would move up quicker, hmm. and that frustrated me. And I saw others move up quicker, and I wondered what the hell was going on. And you thought they were getting a f- uh, you were getting an unfair shake compared I, to them. Yeah, it wasn't just me who thought that, but others thought that too. But uh, but um. But now it sounds like you look back on that and you question yeah, what I, you I th- were thinking. I think yeah, I think there were things that I could have done, and there are things that I didn't have that I should have had or or could have had that that would have helped me a lot. At hmm. that, but one one thing. Um, um, so I think that that I, when you're young and you start any profession, you feel. Like especially when you feel like when you've been you've been building to this moment where you get to the pros of right. whatever, right? You'd think once I get to the pros, everybody's going to see what mm-hmm. I know, mm-hmm. and, and and very often they don't. Like they, or you get knocked down. A yeah, bit. yeah, you get knocked down and you get smacked back. And I think uh, I think the difference. With pro athletes is that especially in places like the NBA is like you get to the league and then someone hands you a bunch of money. Someone hands you a bunch of money and you were touted if you're Carmelo Anthony yeah, yeah, as it's... this as this huge talent that cannot. It takes a very 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 centered teenager to handle that well. To not be a little. It's like being famous before you even do the job. And that's what I think is very different about okay. the average person yeah, working I, into a I, marketing I, position is not does I, not I have that same cloud of anticipation around them. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, but you believe you do. <laughs> you believed you did. Not just me. <laughs> and not just me. A lot of people believe they do. I would love to see if uh, what you would say to your old self. Yeah, I know what I, I know what I I know what I'd say. What would you say? I'd say uh chill the fuck out. What were you not chill about? Um, I actually I had this conversation with my mother um, yesterday. Um, chill the fuck up out and slow the fuck down. So what were you not chill about, and what were you going too fast with? Stop and smell the roses. Like I, I was in college. I was in a hurry to get out of college. Mm-hmm. I was in a hurry to. And I I got. It took me a little bit to get. Uh, uh, like I was in a hurry to get out of my internship and to stop uh, messing around at the radio station at a uh, at the WZE, and then um, what were you doing there? I was interning there, and uh, I was starting to learn some board stuff. And, okay, and like a like I but I was a hu- in a hurry to get to the next thing. Was, With what a mind to get to be a producer. Uh 
Um, and I, I knew I wanted to be involved with uh, out uh, TV. Um, I know eventually I, I had a I have a bunch of things that I still want to do and that uh, that I wanted to do, and I thought like, well, if I just if I just hit fast forward, I'll get to that next mm-hmm. thing quicker. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily how life works. No, and you miss everything that you're doing on the way. Exactly. Which is a cliche, but it's very true. And with goals and career in particular, you you listen to athletes and musicians. Once their moment is over, it's as if they blinked and they didn't... They were not looking around them as it was happening. Yeah. Is the impression I get all the time, that it's just like they're... All of a sudden, it's like, what just happened? And I can understand that a little bit because someone, another writer sent me a Facebook message last year. I think it was early 2015, so now we're in 2017. But um, she said, listen, you got to take a moment to... Because at the time, I had just started... I'd just maybe done three pieces for Pitchfork. And she said, you really have to take a moment to assess and take in what an accomplishment that is. Because I was immediately onto the next... And I was corresponding with her. And for me, that's always been the case. I have to pull myself back from once once I hit a milestone like that, there's maybe a few minutes of enjoyment. And immediately, it switches to got to get to the next rung up. And she was like, wow. She said, no, easy for her to say. I mean, she does uh, segments for PRI. Mm -hmm. Her book, uh, Madonna Land, was just, uh, her name is Alina Simone, was just uh, made it into Rolling Stone's top 10 books of the year. Um, she's she's written for the New York Times blog. So, uh, you know, she's gotten grant money. She's and, and most of this with her has been effortless. She hasn't even tried to pursue these things, and they've just come her way. Um, but I thought I always go back to that message, and I found it very, very helpful because I know once she pointed that out, I was like, wow, I do that. There's no, almost no joy <laughs> And know, like, wow, I did this. So you pump your fist for a second, and then boom, right back to more, 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 more. And that's a way, that's a one-way ticket to be unhappy no matter what you do. And I, I think that, that that articulates it pretty well. I, um, if I was talking to 22-year-old James, I'd said, you, uh, you're basically doing what you thought one of the things you thought you could do already. Like fucking stop. Like enjoy you. Some DJ literally grabbed you and said, Hey, talking to the mic. That felt awesome. And then I just, you know, I brushed it off and moved the CD cases. Uh, (laughs) um, But like, it it was, it was cool. Mm -hmm. And I didn't accept how cool it was. Right. And then, um, and I had other opportunities there, and I could have done it, but I was worried. I, I was trying to get the TV, which I did get to, but I ended up throwing away other stuff. And then I get the TV, and I end up throwing away other stuff. Other, when you, you, are you talking career stuff? Yeah, career stuff, life stuff. Like, you, you, you get, I, I think I was way too wrapped up in this vision of me. And what was that? What did you want to be in TV? Um, I want to run TV. <laughs> okay. But uh, how much did that involve being on camera? Um, 
in your in your. I really didn't want to be on camera. The only the uh, I didn't really didn't think about being on camera until I was in the newsroom for a while. So you wanted to be the guy. I want to be a producer. I wanted to be. Um, I want to be writing. I want to be putting together shows. I wanted to be working on concepts and developing concepts and um, um, figuring out. Um, um, like uh, I always thought, like segment producing w- would be cool, and sort of like figuring out how. Um, I-, I was always fascinated by the credits of shows hmm. and how, like, uh, like in my first uh, when I got my TV job, um, I recognized the guy who interviewed me from the credits of the station when I was a kid. When he was in Whoa. a different position, you're probably one of the only people. Yeah, yeah, that's part of why I got the job. <laughs> that looks at those credits. Yeah, yeah. Who looks at those credits? Right. I like, mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Nobody did. Right. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh yeah, weren't you this? And like, he's like, what? You, you knew that? How do you know that? Wow. Um, like, That's impressive. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, so like, I, I, so, I think stopping and um and. Enjoying being a part of the credits, um, you know, and like, you know, uh, because we stopped running credits for a while, but I got to see my name in credits. Nice. And that was always cool <laughs> to and, see. And also at this point, you have worked in radio, print, yeah. and and TV. Yeah. No. Which, was, which is, was my goal and still is my goal, basically, or, or one of the goals. Is like is to do that kind of thing, and like the fact that I, I that I did, basically I was published on radio at, at a certain point, and then on TV before like twenty five, is like yeah, like I I didn't realize how how much of an achievement that it's was. It's a feather in your cap. Yeah, I just I had no idea. Or a couple of feathers in your cap. Yeah, yeah, mentally, and it was exactly what I wanted. And like I, I just didn't see it, mm-hmm. and because I was so like wrapped up in this thing, sure, um, and and trying to get to the next thing, get to the next thing, get to the next thing, even though, uh, so I tell him like, dude, just enjoy this, have more fun, take more pictures, be like, uh, uh, just don't be a, don't be. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> uh, have um, you know? Um, embrace this because it goes away, and it's um, and then um, you know whatever you do, um, the cubicle's not more fun. <laughs> well, you s- <laughs> you said it goes away. I would say it comes and goes. Yeah, it does. Because right now, for better or worse, or for for what for what it's worth, we yeah. are doing something. Like an adaptation, yeah, yeah, of those same, sure, yeah, w- w- the seeds you were planting when you had those career experiences, yeah. are coming to bear fruit now, yeah, yeah, and you can always re-enter any of those spheres, probably, yeah, uh, if provided you pursue the right opportunity or the right opportunity comes right. up, right. I, I mean, your your LinkedIn is going to be your LinkedIn, no matter you know what I'm saying, right, right. Um, that experience is there. Huh. So, I, I want to turn this around, though. Now, what, what do you tell young Savvy at 22? I was afraid you were going to ask that, and, and it's funny because that's one of the... When I do my 
workshops on how to conduct interviews. That's something that's something I always share with the people in the workshops as like a little back pocket trick, you know, try to get the person to somehow, maybe you wouldn't ask them necessarily directly the the question as you just did, or maybe you would, but try to get them to somehow interface with their, (laughs) with their, and I have asked that, Yeah, but, or at a certain point in your life or in your career or whatever the storyline is, what would you go back and say to that person? Because I'm really interested in what, especially when it comes to art, especially now with uh, musicians and filmmakers and recording engineers, going back and touching up things that they made 30, 40, you know, 20 years ago, decades ago. And I don't like when people do that, by the way. Um, But because I don't think you are the same person. And I think that artist would take issue with the, the current you fucking with their stuff. Right. Um, Because that person would see you as maybe having sold out or whatever. Um, There are a lot of things I would say, Strangely, you're on the right track, even though it doesn't appear like it, and you're very scattered, and you're not very studious. Um, I would say, you know, this is an obvious one, but don't make mistakes with credit. You know, the the mistakes you make at 17 and 18 with credit cards are going to bite you. Of course, yeah, Um, But I would, I have had people, academics, say to me that they don't think it was a mistake for me to leave school. Uh, which is, is flattering, and I've I've long ago come to the conclusion that th- it was a, a, a the right kind of disaster. Um, and I would also say that the things to myself, the things you're doing, daydreaming, writing scenes in your head, or imagining film filmic scenes, you're going to use that later, even though it seems like there's no there's no way forward with it. Um. And stick to music more. Stick to to making and playing music more because that's something I'm not currently doing and that that relationship comes and goes and it's pretty it's pro- it's a problematic relationship like when I'm not making music I, I, I I'm not it doesn't feel healthy to not do that. So and also hey that relationship's going to be troublesome. <laughs> <laughs> so right. so get used to get used to an ambivalent relationship with music and and making it that about covers it um i also have a technique now to motivate myself now where i imagine what my self 10 years from now is trying to tell me now right and it, it works <laughs> you're going into matthew mcconaughey territory so I mean, uh, or something, or 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 even like uh, time travel, science fiction type stuff. But you would think that that takes you out of the moment, but it actually helps me appreciate what I have now and try to avert some disasters. I guess. Yeah. Um, I um. You got to play a clip. Yeah, I have to because um, you um. <laughs> You you nailed uh, something uh, that was very famous that happened um, a couple of years ago at the Oscars. Tell me, because I'm not aware. Matthew McConaughey won the Oscar. And the Oscar goes to Matthew McConaughey. Who's that introducing him? Jennifer Lawrence. Okay. 
sample of the music. It's from the film, though, right? Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the Academy for this, all 6,000 members. Thank you to the other nominees. Uh, all these performances were impeccable, in my opinion. I didn't see a false note anywhere. I want to thank Jean-Marc Vallée, our director. I want to thank Jared Leto, Jennifer Garner, who I worked with daily. Um, there's a few things, about three things to my account that I need each day. Um, one of them is something to look up to, another is something to look forward to, and another is someone to chase. Now, first off, I want to thank God, because that's who I look up to. He's graced my life with opportunities that I know are not of my hand or any other human hand. Um, he has shown me that uh, it's a scientific fact that gratitude reciprocates. Um, in the words of the late Charlie Lawton, who said, when you got God, you got a friend, and that friend is you. <laughs> um, to my family, that's who and what I look forward to. To my father, who I know is up there right now, with a big pot of gumbo, he's got a lemon meringue pie over there, he's probably in his underwear, and he's got a cold can of Miller Lite, and he's dancing right now. To you, Dad, you taught me what it means to be a man. To my mother, who's here tonight, who taught me and my two older brothers demanded that we respect ourselves. And what we in turn learned was then we were better able to respect others. Thank you for that, Mama. To my wife, Camilla, and my kids, Levi, Vita, and Mr. Stone, the courage and significance you give me every day I go out the door is unparalleled. You are the four people in my life that I want to make the most proud of me. Thank you. And to um, my hero, that's who I chase. Now, when I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come to me and say, who's your hero? And I said, I don't know, I gotta think about that. Give me a couple of weeks. I come back two weeks later, this person comes up and says, who's your hero? I said, I thought about it. You know who it is? I said, it's me in 10 years. So I turned 25, 10 years later. That same person comes to me and goes, so are you a hero? And I was like, not even close. No, no, no. She said, why? I said, because my hero is me at 35. So you see, every day, every week, every month, and every year of my life, my hero is always 10 years away. I'm never going to be my hero. I'm not going to attain that. I know I'm not. And that's just fine with me because that keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. Huh. So to any of us, whatever those things are, whatever it is we look up to, whatever it is we look forward to, and whoever it is we're chasing, to that I say amen. To that I say, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> that I say, just keep living, huh? Thank you. Let me just point something out, though. That, that got me thinking a little bit deeper about the way that I envision this. I actually envision me, a version of me that's disappointed. Really? With the choices I'm making now. Wow. Pleading with me to stay on track, and I think that's unconscious. However... I have often in my life 
looked down the road at the future, and this is a bit of a contradiction that I, 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 I've thought about this part, but not the other part, um, where you just sort of imagine things working out. You imagine yourself with a nice, with, you know, decent house, uh, your career's on track, you're in good shape. And, and so there's an idealized version of yourself and then there's like a of your future self and there's a disappointed version of your future self. And I guess the dialogue between those is, you know, playing itself out now. Um, but that's that's very interesting. I was not familiar with that speech that he made. Yeah, um, it's um, it's kind of. Uh, I think it also connects with me also in that um, I think uh, having um, something to chase uh, and fight for is, I think, the most important thing. Uh, I think at least in in terms of um, my life and and um it it helps give everything meaning mm -hmm. otherwise why the hell are we here hmm. yeah i mean and some people are comfortable with just and some cultures are comfortable with with not being so goal or chase oriented and they're they're okay in still sense that it's okay to just be here mm -hmm. and just your interactions are you know, I think to Latin culture, or at least the culture I'm familiar with, you know, Puerto Rico is like a lot like California, and that people. I'm not saying they're not motivated, but but their motivation is different. You know, human interaction is is they place a value on that. From what I understand, as much as we American culture places a value on getting things done, and so yes, but but I I definitely see your point, and and. It always strikes me as odd when people are just okay existing. That just by being here, they're doing enough, you know. But then, <clears throat> I guess both both uh, approaches suffer a little bit. <laughs> we certainly suffer from not uh, even seeing the roses, much less smelling them, <laughs> much less enjoying their fragrance. Amen to that. Be sure to follow Double Booked on SoundCloud and Twitter. Subscribe to our iTunes and YouTube channels and like us on Facebook. You can also reach us via our email address, doublebookedshow at gmail.com. We welcome correspondence on any of those platforms, some of which we will read and respond to on the show. <laughs>